So the, the volume within this series is called The Garden, The Garden of Eden, The Garden of Delight in Reverse. Uh, if you're new, you're going to see why as we, we go along. The Garden in Reverse. So that's where we're going to start. The Garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. That is to water the nations, to water the world. In the beginning, a river flowed through a garden. And then Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So God, in the beginning, chose a man. He chose a man and called him to be a leader a keeper of the garden, a prophet, a priest, a king, the image of God to do good works that glorify God. But it wasn't working, was it? Why wasn't it working? He was alone. God said it's not good that man should be alone. A man needs family. A man needs friends. A man needs fellowship in order to flourish and do good works. So what did God do? God wounded the man. God wounded the man. Verse 21 and 22, God, I'll paraphrase, puts Adam to sleep, divine anesthesia, and performs surgery on his side, removing a rib and fashioning a helper for him, a queen. Her name was Eve, which means the mother of all living. So hold on to this. Life came from Adam's God-inflicted side wound, okay? Life came from Adam's God-inflicted side wound. And when they woke up, the man rejoiced, and they were naked and unashamed, eating from the tree of life in the garden and drinking from the river of God that waters the world. We know what happens next, right? Shame and sin enter into the story. Shame we talked about last week. And the man and the woman, instead of in the garden, they find themselves outside of the garden looking in. You ever felt like that? Outside looking in, in the dryness of desert. And then, to make matters worse, what happens in their family? Their eldest son, Cain, murders his little brother, Abel. I mean, talk about trauma. And it is said that Abel's righteous blood cries out from the ground for justice. And so, throughout the rest of the Bible, on almost every page flow blood and water. Blood and water. Blood and water. Can you say it with me? Blood and water. The human family is saved through a flood of water. You know that story. And right after that, blood is shed. That poor animal, okay? Blood is shed as a sacrifice of atonement and gratitude. Blood is continually shed in violence or as atonement for sin and for violence. Bloodlines, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Bloodlines are saved. Families are formed where? 
in the desert by wells of water. In the desert by wells of water in the place of death. Rivers both poisoned and pure flow throughout the Bible and continue to flow throughout the pages of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, we're going to go lightning speed here. John the Baptist identifies himself as the one who baptizes with water. Right? The next day, here comes Jesus. What does John say? Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb, the one who will shed his blood, and the households that believe will be saved from the curse of death, blood and water. John says, I baptize with water, but he who sheds his blood will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You guys know your scripture. You've been paying attention. This is fun. Chapter 2, water is turned into flowing red wine. I don't have time, but it's so good, okay? Chapter 3, Jesus will say to Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Yes, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Chapter 4, Jesus will say to a lowly woman, where? At a well, at a well, in a dry place. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give them will be in them and will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Chapter 5, Jesus heals a man by a pool on the Sabbath. Don't have time for that one either. Chapter 6, out in the desert by the sea, Jesus offends the crowds by saying what? Truly, truly, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. And all God's people said, ew, okay? <laughs> and they were offended. Chapter 7, they didn't get it. Chapter 7, during the high feast of booths, remember this one, oh my gosh, when water would be continually drawn from the pool of Siloam and carried a long way to the temple and poured on the altar to commemorate what? The rock of salvation being struck, where? In the desert and life-giving water flowing out for the people of Israel. Remember, on the last day, the great day, John says, of that feast, he stands up, and what does he cry out? If anyone thirsts, where should they go? Let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, now this he said about the Spirit, the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. We could keep going, okay? We could keep going. Blood and water, blood and water, blood and water. And you might have noticed, and Spirit. Blood and water and Spirit. John says that I baptize with water, but Jesus will baptize with Spirit. There will come a moment when Jesus will be lifted up, when the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be lifted up. And in that moment, blood and water will come together and mingle and flow down. And in that moment, the gates of heaven 
will open up and the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. And in that moment of death, in that moment of cursing, in that moment of blood, the very life and blessing of God will flood the world. The garden of delight will be opened again to the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. That's you and me. In the words of Revelation 22, oh man, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It goes on, that water is watering the tree of life for the healing of the nations. Blood and water and spirit, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Friends, that river is flowing down Delval Parkway in Pleasanton this morning. Amen? Some of us are going to go swimming this morning, okay? Whew, I think we're ready to get into our text today. I'm still in the introduction, okay? Genesis 2, Revelation 22. We're at the summit. Let's stand up. You're at the summit of the gospel of John. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. i got to pace myself. <laughs> Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Remember last week, that amazing moment, Jesus is on the cross and he has just formed the church. He's just formed a little family of Mary, his mother, and John, his disciple. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. We're going to come back to this text, by the way, on Palm Sunday. One sermon's not enough. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For the Sabbath was a high day, really important feast. The Jews, this is the leaders, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man being crucified and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, remember he's in the middle, and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, to make sure he was dead, pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Good, blood and water. He who saw it, that's John himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. Hallelujah. All right, so let's come back and pick up in verse 31. So this is after Jesus of his own will, right? No one takes his life from him. Of his own will, he succumbs to death and he gives up his spirit. The background of verse 31 comes from the law of Moses. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 21, where it says that if someone is executed in Israel, remember this is a theocracy we're talking about, 
If someone is executed in Israel, hung on a tree, they're cursed by God, okay? And so the body needs to be removed quickly and buried. You don't just leave a curse hanging up there, right, to potentially spread to the ground. There's a lot of irony happening here. Um, And see, the Romans, they loved to leave bodies up on crosses for as long as possible, to be picked apart by crows. It was a, a flex of the empire, right? It was a warning. Say, this, this could be you. This could be your son. This could be your daughter. Stay in line. And so the Jewish leaders, right, they, they beg Pilate to break the legs. This is the Roman practice of crufragium. It's done with an iron mallet to speed up the process. They can't hold themselves up anymore. Asphyxiation would go quicker and they would die. And so if they would die quicker, could be removed and buried, then the Jewish leaders could host their Sabbath celebration with a clean conscience tomorrow. Charles Spurgeon quipped on this that uh, religious scruples can live in a dead conscience. Ouch. Hebrews 10 says, draw near to God. Draw near to God with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, a bad conscience. Here we have this gross caricature, right? Probably the best picture we have of a conscience that is not working properly. Uh, It's like a disturbing picture, the unclean conscience of unhealed leaders, okay? Unclean conscience of unhealed leaders. Like, you know, an unhealed leader because they just, they don't even know it, but they're just blindly wounding innocent people as they go, Right? They're wounding volunteers, they're wounding employees, they're wounding kids in whatever field it is, right? in an attempt to cleanse themselves. Notice that. Right? It's like, come on, we got services in the morning. Kill these losers and get these bodies out of here. It's just gross. It's crass. I have a, f- a good friend. He's now a church planter, but I remember he was so hurt in, in his first staff job. He and some volunteers uh, were setting up Easter Sunday morning. Right? And they made a mistake, and so it set him back. And his lead pastor screamed at them, screamed at him and all his volunteers. He was like, it's Easter. Like, homie, you lost the plot, you know? But this is all of us. This is all of us, right? A bad conscience fails to see the living, breathing person right in front of us because we're so busy trying to quench our own thirst, So we just wound them further, right? We're so busy trying to prove ourselves. We're so busy trying to justify ourselves. We're so busy trying to defend ourselves. Or we're just so busy trying to do our job, whether it's our job or taking care of our kids, that we forget it's our job, Jesus said very clearly, to love because he first loved us. We start using people, right? So the very first thing we got to do is just slow down. The leaders just miss there is something of eternal consequence going on. Blessing is coming down from heaven, and they're just totally self-consumed and missing it. When we're in a hurry, we miss our own hypocrisy. We need to slow down, draw near to God, and he'll help us see our own hypocrisy. That's a fun process, let me assure you. So verse 32, the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. So just imagine the scene. Remember, Mary and John are still there. Jesus' mother and now brother are standing there. And um, they must have started on either side of Jesus, so multiple soldiers, to get to him last. And Mary and John would have 
heard the sickening crunch of iron on bone and the screams of dying men. But verse 33, when they came to Jesus and they saw he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. And this is significant, John said. It just seemed insignificant at the time, but it's significant. John says um, that it's going to fulfill two scriptures just in this moment. Uh, Number one, it fulfills the scripture that Jesus is the lamb. He's the Passover lamb. Remember, the Passover lamb, to be an acceptable sacrifice, couldn't have any broken bones, couldn't have any other blemishes, right? And so it's fulfilling that prophecy on the one hand. And on the other hand, Psalm 34 speaks of a righteous man who stands condemned. They're condemning him, but he's righteous. And it says of this man, he, quote, keeps all his bones. And Psalm 34 ends with this great promise that it's actually those condemning him, those who hate him, who will be condemned. But no one who takes refuge in him, no one who trusts in him will be condemned because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? No condemnation. But the second prophetic fulfillment moment is in verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Verse 35, he who saw it, that's John, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you might also believe. This is the summit. This is the peak. Guys, John breaks the fourth wall here. Okay, he looks right at the camera, and he tells us, like, don't miss the significance of this moment. Don't miss what is going on. For the first and only time in all of the Gospel of John, John tells us that this report is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses who were there. He says, I saw it. It's true. Jesus gave up his spirit, and his side was wounded, and blood and water, his very life, flowed out of him. Now, there are levels to this thing. (laughs) There are levels to this thing. On the surface, here's what John is saying. It's profound. Jesus really died. Main point today, okay? Jesus really died, so he really rose. Okay, that might be like, okay, but this was a big deal, right? In John's time, he was fighting the docetists, an ancient heresy, and what they taught was that Jesus clearly had to be a god for him to be who he was and do the things he did. And a god can't die, okay? So he didn't really die. He just seemed to die. He just seemed to be a man. I'm told Islam teaches the same thing. They do believe Jesus was a man, a prophet, but he only swooned on the cross, right? He only appeared to die. John's saying, no, 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 no. I was there. I saw it. He died. The life flowed out of him. But like I said, there are levels here. Levels. At a deeper level, John's alluding to like every page of the Bible, is he not? Every page of the Bible. Get this. Get this. Jesus' body, remember back in chapter 2? It's the true temple. Jesus' body is the true temple that he says will be destroyed. Jesus' body is the true temple being breached by the Gentiles by the Romans, being destroyed. And the fullness of God that dwelled bodily in Jesus is flowing out for the life of the world. Whoa! The life-giving presence of God in Christ Jesus is flowing out and is thus accessible in Pleasanton this morning. In all the world. And who's it starting with? 
is flowing down on this little family of Mary and John that Jesus just formed at his feet, and they're going to go bear witness to what they've seen. And so we might believe, all might believe in Jesus. Listen how John opens his letter to the church. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It's going to be up on the screen for you. John's gushing here, okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's saying he saw God. He saw eternal life. He touched God. He touched eternal life. The life was made manifest, it appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. John wants you to believe. John wants you to join this little family, join this little fellowship at the foot of the cross and there find healing. And there under the cross find the life that's worth calling life. He wants you to jump in with both feet and go swimming in the river of the water of life. Let's go. He goes on. This was too good not to read, okay? Uh, Chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. He really died. And this, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. He says, listen, if we receive the testimony of people, How do you know anything happens in the world? Because people told you, multiple people, eyewitnesses, right? You receive the testimony of people. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is where? In his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life life. I was walking around like practicing this yesterday because I was so fired up and my my one-year-old started going, (laughs) my son, I'll never forget that. It was incredible. I didn't plan on sharing that. Anyway, this is the moment. This is the moment and this might be your moment this morning. This might be your moment this morning. This is the moment. This is the moment Jesus really died and his death really is the source of life. Blood and water, what's blood and water? Blood and water are life. And life poured out of the God and man inflicted side wound of the God man of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. This is the summit. This is the peak. This is Calvary. This is the moment. John says in verse 35, this is the truth, okay? Like the capital T truth. Like this didn't just happen in the sense that I just hit the pulpit, okay? That happened. That's true. But John's like, no, no, no. This is the truth, okay? This is the truth. This moment was so full, it's not a was, it's an is. This moment is so 
full of meaning that it overflows to all other moments, to this moment. This moment was so pregnant with meaning that it gives birth to all other moments and make them moment of potential salvation. Today, Hebrews says, is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Come on in. The water is as bright as crystal. All right, let's go swimming. Oh, Lord, give me strength. All right, verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and the beginning of 13. And I will pour out, Zechariah prophesied, I will pour out, this is the word of God, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is where Jesus was crucified, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only or beloved child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, Zechariah says, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. On the day God's Son is pierced, a fountain will open for cleansing. This is that day. This is that moment, John says. I was there. I saw it. This is the moment the curtain of heaven was pierced by an unwitting soldier, and life-giving power flowed to earth and began to do what? Create a new temple create a new humanity, create a new Eve, create a new bride called the church. This is the moment the rock was struck and water came out to quench our eternal thirst. As we say with Jesus, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. John the eyewitness was so inspired by the Holy Spirit that he wrote this so that we would believe that the immortal God really died on the cross and that his death really is the source of life for us mortals. Some of you already believe. Lots of you already believe, and I hope you're enjoying yourself this morning, learning a little something this morning. Um, But many of us fall into two camps. We either say John is a liar, or he's deluded. Someone made this up. God help you. (laughs) I do not think people could have made this up. I thought that for a long time. The more I read it, the less plausible that seems. Or, this may be a majority We believe, but we aren't so sure we, like, took the right exit. (laughs) Like, we believe, but we're like, did I miss some instructions? Okay, did I get in the wrong line here? You know, because you're looking around at the desert of your life, and you're wondering where this so-called stream is. And I want to talk to you this morning, because you're who this text is primarily for. You believe or you want to believe, but you're wondering where is the life? Where is the life? Where's this felt forgiveness? Where's this divine fellowship? Where is it? Why don't I feel forgiven? Why don't I feel this fellowship? Where's this fountain? Where's this well? I'm thirsty, sir. Where is it? Where's that drink you're talking about? Like, I'm dehydrated. I'm spiritually anemic. Where is the fountain? 
And John tells us explicitly where the fountain is and how to drink it, and the devil doesn't want me to tell you this morning. Back to 1 John chapter 1. Friends, this is my life raft passage. This passage saved my bacon. We're going to start in verse 7. How do we drink from this fountain? If we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Where? In the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're hypocrites. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, that's another way of saying if we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Walk in the light, confess your sins. In case you think I'm cherry picking one verse, I'll throw in a few more, okay? Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another. Why? That you might be healed. Bear one another's burdens. And in context, that's transgressions. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth this moment, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Whoa. Walk in the light. Confess your sins. Walk in the light. Confess your sins. Then the blood and water will avail for you. Did you know that the blood of Jesus, that the sacrifice of Jesus can have no benefit for you? Perhaps the very soldier who pierced his side remained in his sins. He stood under the fountain and didn't get wet. And did you know that you can die of thirst for fear of drowning? That you can die of thirst sitting there in a pew next to the river of the water of life for fear of jumping in and drowning. To confess your sins out loud to one another is to jump into that water of life bright as crystal. See, sin will drown in those waters, but friend, you will not. You will not. To go on confessing deliberately is to learn to swim, right? To go on sinning deliberately and hiding sin deliberately is death, but to go on confessing deliberately is life. John says, in confession of sin, he's so specific, in confession of sin, we find forgiveness, in confessing our sin out loud with one another, we find fellowship. He says right there on the screen, confession of sin is a practice of life together, okay? Remember our seven apprenticeship practices? Life together, number three. And this is a bedrock, a foundational practice of life together in apprenticeship to Jesus. In the book Life Together, okay, some of our men are reading it right now, is written during World War II. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together. And it's written at an illegal seminary, uh, training pastors who wouldn't bend the knee to Hitler and the Third Reich. Okay, so Bonhoeffer ends that book 
with a chapter on the practice of confessing sin to one another. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that chapter affected me, changed my life more than anything outside of Scripture. And there what Bonhoeffer says is that the practice of confessing your sins is how most of us need to break through. That's the practice that has most of us break through to fellowship. Break through to the cross, he says. Break through to new life, he says. Break through to assurance, to certainty that we are forgiven. It's my pastoral experience that most of us walk around feeling unforgiven, feeling unloved, feeling undelighted in, like we're on the outside of the garden looking in, out in the desert, until we confess our sins. Until we make a practice of confessing specific sins, not to a priest through a wall, okay? But like to someone you trust, a humble, honest fellow believer who will look you in your eyes and tell you that you are loved and tell you that you are forgiven. In that practice, we have a breakthrough. In that practice, we have a breakthrough to fellowship. In confession, we stand at the foot of the cross with Mary and John. In confession, we touch the wounds of Jesus with Thomas. We feel the forgiveness. And guys, this, this is my story. Uh, years ago, I've shared a little of this story as a pastor here. I was in desperation. I was deep in deconstruction. Um, I was depressed. And I began, by the grace of God, uh, sort of by accident, with a, not God's accident, but a couple of other desperate, struggling pastors. And we just weekly had a rhythm of confessing our sins to each other, of walking in the light. Like, even what seems like minute stuff, I thought this, I said this mean thing to my wife or my son, right? I thought this, I scrolled intentionally past that, right? Like, just no explaining, just confessing. And I didn't believe I was forgiven, but they did, and vice versa, until after a while we all did. We learned to swim together. And uh, as we did that over time, that light gets brighter, bright as crystal. And we began to see something, began to see something profound. What we began to see is that our sin Our sins were strategies. Our sins were strategies to conceal wounds we didn't want anyone to see. Conceal wounds we weren't even aware of in many cases that we had, right? Our sins were strategies to conceal or even heal our own wounds that just made the wound worse. Like, I'll give you a really simple example. Why would I work so hard to the neglect of my family as family pastor? Why in the world would I do that? Because I believe I receive validation and approval at work, and that's how I'm made safe, and that's my refuge. Well, where did I believe, learn that? Now, there, now we're getting a peek, right, into a deep wound in Pastor Dane. And so, man, six years of this, here's what I now know. I know that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're healed. Just because you're in ministry doesn't mean you're healed. Just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're healed. Just because you're high capacity doesn't mean you're healed. Just because you're a high capacity ministry leader doesn't mean you are healed. And like the leaders in the story, if you're unhealed, if there's hypocrisy, if you aren't sprinkled, if you aren't swimming, you're wounding others with your words and you don't even know it. 
You got pokey words, like Miss Kelly says. Pokey words. You don't even know it. Other people know it. <laughs> Other people know that your words are hurtful. And what I know, sorry, is that every single person, saint and sinner in this room is a sinner. Because every person in this room is wounded. Every person in this room is woundable, which in England, in England, English is vulnerable because woundable sounds German, okay? We're all woundable. We're all vulnerable. I need to lighten it up. And listen, you can't connect, can you, with a person who won't be vulnerable. You can't connect, can you, with a person who won't risk being wounded. You can't have intimacy. You can't have relationship with an invulnerable person. Oh, boy, here we go. Behold the God who became wounded. Behold the God who became vulnerable because he wanted a relationship with you. You could not have made this up. Don't call God a liar. Believe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the glory. Behold the cross. Behold the light. This is the moment. Walk in it and find healing. Here is the fountain. Drink from it and find forgiveness here is the river, swim in it and find fellowship. Behold the wounded God, amen? Behold the wounded God. Confess your sins so that you can come to know him wound to wound, which is the only way to know anybody. My heart's bleeding up here today, if you can't tell, VCC. VCC in Pleasanton. You know, about 20 years ago, people used to say the CC stands for country club. Ouch, right? Not anymore. Not these days. There's a lot of honesty in this church. I love it, right? And I've found a little bit of that. And that practice I began to do with a couple other pastors. I now do with a bunch of men. Monday mornings, Wednesday afternoons. And I pray it was spread to the whole church. And I know there's pockets of women who are doing it too. By the way, our high schoolers are way out ahead of us in this practice. The honesty among our high schoolers is insane. But I'm asking the Lord for more and more because what it does is it frees us up for our garden keeping. It frees us up for our real work. Healing frees us up for our real work. I want you to experience that breakthrough to fellowship, to the cross, that breakthrough to certainty that you're loved and delighted in because you see it in the eyes of your brothers and your sisters when you unload it all. I want you to break through to true life and life together and faithful witness by confessing your sins out loud to another humble and honest believer. I'm dead serious, okay? Dead serious. We're gonna, we're gonna confess our sins corporately now. Uh, and for some of us, happy few, that's plenty. That's more than enough, okay? But don't hide in that. Don't hide in that because for many more of us, we need to think who we're going to call this week. Or maybe we're going to turn in our pew and make a confession right now in these few moments, okay? Who are you going to swim with? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to walk in the light with. I want you to answer that question with specificity.